Yo, all hail the man that built me with his own hands And taught me just what it was like to be a grown man Taught me just what it was like to be my own man And kept disguising life lessons for his own plan Between the Five years ago they said I'd have no chance That's what happened when the devil wanna slow dance Back when Roscoe was singing on no hands I was learning how to float through all the slow jams Between the lines, my mind is in sync and deprogrammed Lord knows in the past I was a cold man My fam stuck with me, brought the light to me To take it from me, have to pry it from my cold hands And welcome back to the Between the Lies podcast Where we deep dive into whatever wicked or warped subject we might find our way into Now, luckily, because of certain schedule changes that I've had recently, I am actually planning on doing the podcast more frequently, and I'd like to branch into doing it weekly. So I know like being on a two-week schedule, especially for listeners, and it's not easy for me either, but being on a two-week schedule can be tough. You kind of get off track, and it just weekly almost just feels better to me. Um, And I did talk in the last podcast about how my family was moving into a new place and we're getting a lot of things settled and it's just been go, go, go for the past couple months. Um, But now we're a little bit more settled in um, and I'm able more so because of certain schedule changes that I'm experiencing in a good way um, to be able to contribute a little bit more time to the Between the Lies podcast. So that's first and foremost. I'm looking to now do it weekly. Um, And in general, this specific episode today, we're going to be talking about an amazing topic. And when I say amazing, I mean there is disappearances and death involved. But amazing in the terms of when you look at it a million different ways, you still come up with this mysterious veil around it almost that has been so intriguing to me for the longest time. Of course, I'm talking about the missing 411, which I call it. I've also heard people call it the missing 411. I guess that sounds kind of cooler, but the missing 411 also sounds cool. But nonetheless, whenever you're looking at these type of cases, there are certainly a lot of mystery surrounding them. There is a hundred different situations where people have gone missing and just certain things don't add up along the way. And all of this relatively seems to be happening in or around the surrounding areas of some of the nation's national parks, which is a totally different discussion and a whole different level um, to it. But today I want to talk about one of the cases that has stuck out to me in looking through the missing 411, and it does check all the boxes in terms of a missing 411 case. There is certainly mystery, there are certainly high levels of coincidence, and we'll get into that as well. But today we will be specifically going into the disappearance of Dennis Martin. We're going to go over the timeline and some of the weird things along the way that just to me don't add up. And we're going to talk about my personal theory, what I hypothesize rather could be going on. And we'll talk about different theories along the way. And to wrap it up, we're actually going to talk about just in general the missing 411 because... This is going to be a reoccurring episode for the Between the Lies podcast. I might not do it for the very next episode, but in general, these missing 411 cases, there is so much to them. I feel that I'm doing anybody a disservice by talking for 45 minutes and summing up all of the missing 411 cases. So I wanted to start with this case, and this happened in 1969. This is one of the most intriguing cases, at least to me, along the way. 
which again is the disappearance of Dennis Martin. So let's get to it, and we'll start by establishing the timeline of Dennis Martin's disappearance and all the happenings and try to read between the lies as always. So let's get to it. So Dennis Martin was a six-year-old resident of Knoxville, and he was visiting the Great Smoky Mountains National Park alongside his father, grandfather, and their older brother on Father's Day weekend in 1969. Kind of getting the whole family together. Let's get the boys together and go on this trip. This was apparently an annual happening in the Martin family, which makes this all the more sad that Dennis would go missing on the trip. So the family hiked from Cades Cove to Russell Field and camped there overnight. The following day, they hiked to Spence Field near the Appalachian Trail, where they planned to spend the night. Now, something that I just want to note before we continue on with the timeline, which is an extremely odd coincidence in this case, which I believe to just be maybe a coincidence, but nonetheless a little bit eerie considering what ended up unfolding. Now, at some point on the final day before Dennis Martin went missing, he would go missing around 4.30 p.m. At some point in the hours leading up to that, the Martin family, like we talked about, his grandfather, father, and older brother on this Father's Day trip, were actually approached by another family at a certain point along their hike. The family that approached them had basically insinuated that They didn't know the trails too well, and maybe they could, you know, kind of hang out on this day, and maybe their kids could get together and play. Anything I've read basically said that the parents approached Dennis Martin's father and grandfather and basically said, hey, is it cool if, like, our kids get together? You know, we don't know the trails too well. Maybe they could have some fun. You know, our kids are a little bored on this trip. So, nonetheless, yeah, that's a little weird, but you got to remember that it's 1969. People are much more friendly. Like, this maybe is something that wouldn't necessarily happen today. I guess it could happen today. It would be less likely to happen today, I'd say, in the way that society is. But, nonetheless, they were approached by this family that wanted their children to play together. Now, the weirdest part of it, and this isn't in Wikipedia at all, which I found to be odd... But the family that actually approached the Martins, their last name was also the Martins. So when you find out some of these events that unfold into the disappearance of Dennis Martin, you'll see that that's just a very odd coincidence. And even as I'm talking about it right now, I have chills. I don't know why that is. It's just what are the chances that this family that approaches them the same day their son goes missing has the same exact last name and wants to get the kids together, and then those kids playing together like they're proposing actually would lead to the disappearance of Dennis Martin. But nonetheless, here's how it went down. All the kids with the same last name decided at around 4.15 to 4.30 on June 14th that they were going to sneak up on the adults at the main campsite. So the kids at first were playing hide-and-seek and then decided, let's sneak up on the adults, a very kid type of thing to do I mean many kids do that so this is not out of the norm turns out that Dennis Martin that day was the only boy who was wearing a red shirt therefore he would stand out in the brush as they were trying to sneak up on their parents and these adults they were with for this trip so Dennis Martin's brother actually pointed out to him his older brother why don't you go hide over there you're in a red shirt you know you're going to give us away and that is the last time he was ever seen So about five minutes after all the kids had come out to scare the adults and Dennis was nowhere to be seen, Dennis's father would grow weary and he would sprint for two miles straight down in the direction that Dennis Martin was last seen. 
Now, keep in mind that Dennis Martin was six years old at the time, and the dad is literally sprinting full speed five minutes after he disappeared. So logically, you would think, especially his son wearing a red shirt, he would be able to locate him. I mean, logically, your mind would tell you that. But it was like Dennis Martin had just disappeared into thin air. And as we continue to talk about some of these missing 411s cases, some of the things that become very apparent is there are some paranormal kind of level to this. I have chills as I'm talking about this, literally. There's a paranormal level to some of these 411 cases where these people sometimes are one place one second and a totally different in another. I mean, there's just no explanation as to why Dennis Martin's father could not locate him after sprinting two miles in the direction he last saw his son. It logically does not make sense. So his father, again, ran down that trail for two miles until he was sure he could not have gotten any farther. After several hours, he and the other adults sought help from the National Park Service rangers. Now, the area where Martin disappeared is marked by steep slopes and ravines, more of the reason he couldn't have got so far as to up to two-plus miles away from where he disappeared from, at least in my opinion. Wild animals such as copperhead snakes, bears, feral hogs, and bobcats inhabit the area, unfortunately. A downpour broke out shortly after Martin's disappearance, dropping 3 inches or 7.6 centimeters of rain in a matter of hours, which washed out trails and caused streams to flood, and that would also cause dogs to lose a scent. So you also have that going on. And that's another aspect of these 411 cases that we're going to see. A lot of these disappearances are marked by some type of event such as rain, big snow, big storms, lightning, just chaos in terms of weather events. It's another almost paranormal level to some of these 411 cases, but that's something we'll get into later on in the series as well as later on in the episode. Let's get back to Dennis Martin. In terms of the actual investigation, it goes as follows. So the search efforts included separate searches by the National Guard and Green Berets as well. They found no trace. Again, heavy rains during the first day's search and heavy mist the next following days, of course, hampered the efforts of the search. Up to 1,400 people were involved in the search effort at a point, potentially obscuring possible clues. So that's something that's not talked about enough. In terms of searches, of course, it's great that 1,400, 1,500 people want to come out and look for the six-year-old boy. Of course, that's what you would expect, and that's a wonderful thing. But at the same time, especially with the rain, this is introducing all of these different footprints, all of this DNA, all of this idea that somebody could be walking over the evidence, which they're looking for, unfortunately, especially it being 1969. Of course, forensic testing and things like that were not as widely available, and it was harder to really pinpoint where somebody had gone based on physical evidence. But nonetheless, now there were footprints found at some point during the search, and they were child-sized footprints that led to a stream where they then disappeared. The tracks indicated that one foot was barefoot while the other one was in an Oxford, the type of shoe Martin was wearing, or a tennis-type shoe. Retired park ranger and author Dwight McCarter believes that the prints likely belonged to Martin, although the investigators at the time dismissed those footprints as belonging to some of the Boy Scouts who were also involved in the search. But it's important to note that these prints, one foot was barefoot and the other had a shoe. So you have to likely conclude that those were possibly Dennis's footprints. Did he fall into the ravine? That's very possible. But it gets weird later on in this case, and it really just brings a lot of doubt into the theories of what might have happened, and there are just so many oddities. 
in this case. So by June 22nd, 56 square miles of ground have been covered. More than a thousand searchers continue to look until June 26th when the search was finally cut back. The search was completely abandoned on June 29th after a last search. The search was officially closed down on September 14th, 1969, and as of 2022, it is still the largest search in the history of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Now, most of that information is straight off of Wikipedia and me just paraphrasing for the sake of the podcast, but there's a few things in this case that aren't being talked about in the official narratives that we're reading today in 2023, some 60 years later. But these include a few things like so. So, the FBI was actually working on this case. If you Google FBI Dennis Martin, you will actually find a few pages of public records. The one I'm looking at is actually 133 pages. An FBI report all about the search of Dennis Martin. And Dennis Martin's father was extremely intelligent and based on witness testimony in terms of knowing Dennis Martin's father and witnessing him during the search, many people said that he was one of the most intelligent people you could ever come across. So much so that he even spearheaded the movement in terms of the search for Dennis Martin. He was involved in every single move, whether that be talking to authorities about certain leads And he basically had all the knowledge of the case or thought that he was being given all of the knowledge um, in terms of the case and the search for his son. But there were a few things that the FBI left out. And we're going to talk about that. There was a family named the Keys family, which actually witnessed something rather unsettling in the same day that Dennis Martin disappeared. So let's talk about the account from the Keys family again on the same day that Dennis Martin went missing. So they were from Tennessee, that being the Keys family, and were in the same mountains that day looking for wildlife in Cades Cove, several miles away from where Dennis went missing. They left without ever knowing about the search for the missing boy. Weeks later, when the father, Harold Key, learned about the search, he actually contacted officials and reported hearing a scream and seeing a figure running through the woods. News reports at the time indicated that Key's son thought the figure was a bear, Later, they determined it must have been a disheveled man hiding in the bushes. He was definitely avoiding us, Key was quoted saying at the time. Now, officials would discount this narrative and the connection because of the distance and the rough timeline that Key provided. It was nearly impossible to think someone could have snatched that boy and carried him away to that spot, or so they said. Still, many have seized on this report, citing along with dozens of internet-driven stories as well, an indication that Dennis was carried off the mountain. So, reportedly, the Keys had also seen something on the back of this feral person that they witnessed, and they actually reported seeing this feral person with something on its back jump into a van, a beat-up, disheveled van, and drive away. And that's another part of this case that you won't find on the internet at all, but if you deep dive into this case, you'll see some of these weird reports that are like... Just the oddest thing you will ever hear. I mean, why would that not be in some of today's official narratives? At least the Keys thought they saw that at the least, even if they're not a credible witness. I mean, why wouldn't that be in some of the texts that we're reading today about this specific case? And also, like I mentioned earlier, the FBI, of course, was keeping an open line of communication with Dennis Martin's father and uh, him being a very intelligent man. He was very surprised when he got some third-hand information basically telling him that the FBI 
was totally hiding the Keys' testimony that we just talked about from Dennis Martin's father. From that point on, Dennis Martin's father would basically be a component or proponent of the theory, rather, that Dennis Martin was taken and abducted and the FBI was covering it up. Now, many people have cited the fact that Dennis Martin's father actually went with a trusted park ranger at the time and went to the same area where the Keys had saw this feral person. So basically, the FBI was telling Dennis Martin's father, we didn't tell you this piece of information simply because there's no way that your son could have traveled that amount of time and been in that exact place, and besides, the timeline didn't really match up from the Keys family. But Dennis Martin's father and this park ranger would trek that same exact trail from the point where he last saw his son, Dennis Martin, all the way to the reports where the Keys family had saw this so-called disheveled and feral person. And they had proven, not only to the FBI, but to themselves, and should be the world, that this could have been tracked. So the FBI clearly was withholding information, one, from Dennis Martin's dad, although they were open book with everything else, and two, they were lying about some of the timelines and the amount of time it would take to get to a certain place. I mean, it really makes you wonder. And this is just the tip of the iceberg when we talk about some of these missing 411s cases. I will be going over one more case shortly, but I just want to talk in general a little bit about the cases. There is an author named David Paul Cedes, I believe is how you pronounce his name. If I'm butchering that, I'm so sorry. I'm terrible with pronunciation sometimes, and I might be remembering his name wrong. I'll feel bad if I am. Anyways, he is a renowned Missing 411 researcher, and what actually sprang him into this lifelong journey of looking into the Missing 411 is as follows. He was speaking to a park ranger at some point because he had heard stories of people going missing in the national parks and was just kind of following up on it with a journalistic interest um, just for fun, really, not just curiosity more so than anything. And the national park ranger actually told him this, and he's even told this story many times on radio, etc., in some of his documentaries, etc. The national park ranger basically told him, we don't keep track of the amount of missing people in the national parks. This was after David basically had asked the National Park Ranger about obtaining some numbers about the amount of people that go missing in national parks, and especially the number of people that go missing in national parks under mysterious circumstances. And that's when he learned that the national parks, and aka the national parks are connected to the government and everything. I mean, it's like state-run, basically. It's owned basically by the government when you really think about it. The National Park Rangers are, you know, there's a lot of politics involved in these type of places. And the FBI, even being in on the Dennis Martin search, you would think that for the FBI to be aware of a lot of people going missing in a certain area, that there would be numbers kept. If you asked a local police officer in your precinct, wherever you are, um, per se, how many people have gone missing in the last 10 years around this general area? I bet they would have some paperwork telling you how many people had gone missing, how long they've been gone for, etc. I mean, they would have the stats and the facts. So for the National Park Rangers, as well as the FBI, not only to be withholding information, but to say that they have no idea of the amount or don't keep the numbers on the amount of missing people in or around these national parks. I mean, that's when you start to get chills. That's when it gets a little bit scary. 
what I'm getting at is they are more than able to obtain these numbers and report them, but obviously something is being withheld here, and that's what drew David Paul Cedes to this case, and he would basically dedicate his life to it. And in the next part, when I cut in again, I'm actually going to be able to know whether I got his name right, so I hope I did. So, of course, my bad track record of pronunciations continues on the Between the Lies podcast. This is nothing new, and I mean no disrespect to the man who has dedicated his life to this. His name is David Politis, and that is how he himself pronounces it, and I just fact-checked that. So I did not mean any disrespect by mispronouncing it. Uh, Sometimes I'm just really bad with names and remembering how to pronounce names. So I do apologize uh, for that. I am actually aiming at some point to get him to be able to come onto the podcast or at least do some type of phone call with me where I can pick his brain about certain things. Now, in the various interviews I've heard um, from David Politis, he never leans any real way about what he thinks is happening, which to me is maybe the best part about learning about some of these things is kind of coming to your own conclusion and coming to your own theory in your head, but that's something he's not willing to do. Of course, he has a police background, so he's just following the facts, and at the end of the day, based on all the interviews I've heard from him so far, I've gone through a few hours of them, it seems that he is only comfortable saying that he has no clue what is going on, but that also is the most intriguing part. So lastly, I do want to go over the second case, which has caught my eye in combing through hundreds of these cases and listening to some of these interviews. And we're going to talk about that right now. And we'll close out the podcast by talking about a few of the theories along the way and playing with some of those ideas. So here we go. Located in or around Washington County near West Fork, Arkansas in the United States is Devil's Den State Park. It's a 2,500-acre wilderness area that's a magnet for tourists in the region. Again, a desolate area, not a lot of people inhabiting it, a lot of tourists, a lot of hikers. Again, one of those boxes that are checked off in terms of these 411 cases that we'll talk about. Now, here people come to engage in all manner of these outdoor activities, such as, but not limited to, picnicking, camping, hiking, mountain biking, horse riding, and seeing the numerous sandstone caves, bluffs, ravines, rock shelters, and crevices that dot up the area, as well as hunt for fossils, which apparently this area has many. So the area is also a popular destination for families looking to enjoy the great outdoors. And in 1946, the Van Oust family made their way for a fun family trip to do just that. But it would soon prove to be anything but fun. One day, the family was near their campsite and the family's daughter, 8-year-old Catherine Van Oust, was playing in the creek in her bathing suit as her brothers fished nearby. At some point, she wandered off and seemingly vanished into thin air. Does that sound familiar? Her father and brothers had apparently been right near her and basically looked away for just a second to look back and find her completely gone. It was just the thought that she had gone off a bit or gone to the campsite just a stone's throw away, and there was no alarm sound at this point, but little Catherine was nowhere to be seen and would not answer any calls to her at all. As they continued searching the woods and the campsite with no sign of her, the panicked family then notified park officials and a large-scale search would begin. Now, the searchers would launch a meticulous and methodical search of the entire area for several square miles, with every moment that went by seen as extremely critical, especially since Catherine was barefoot and dressed in nothing but a bathing suit at the time of her disappearance. 
The search would go on for six long days with no sign of the missing girl and hope waning, until at one point, a team of volunteers were in the forest and passed by a cave, from which little Catherine Van R. suddenly appeared and casually waved at them. I literally have chills and goosebumps right now. According to those who were there, she was extremely spookily calm and almost in a daze when she simply uttered the words, Here I am. Wow. Chills. What made this completely mind-boggling was the spot where she was found was seven air miles away and 600 feet higher than the place she had originally disappeared, which would just be the first of many odd details in this case. Now, the most glaringly bizarre thing about this entire case was that this 8-year-old girl had apparently walked an estimated 30-mile zigzagging course to get to where she was found, all in harsh, steep, treacherous wilderness terrain in nothing but a bathing suit and no shoes on. The area is riddled with rocky terrain, thick forests, and steep hills, so one of the perplexing things for authorities at the time and even now was how could she have managed to cover that distance in six days through this challenging landscape, let alone barefoot. Now, her feet were described as swollen, and she was also covered in insect bites and scratches, so it was apparent that she had done some wandering, but she also didn't seem to be in nearly as poor condition as somebody who had covered this terrain. And she had covered so much distance that even a properly equipped adult would have had a tough time matching it. She also seemed to be in better shape than one would have expected from her ordeal. The cave she was in just happened to have a fresh water spring, coincidentally, and despite various cuts and bruises, she was much not the worse for wear, all things being considered. Another odd part of this case was that the place where she was found, the cave, had already been thoroughly searched by aircraft and tracker dogs at least twice without having found any trace of Catherine. So why had she just suddenly appeared there, and why had she been so remarkably calm after such a frightening experience? The strangeness would only continue from there, though. According to David Paulitis, who again is the most renowned Missing 411 researcher, there were several other oddities when police actually spoke to the girl. She allegedly claimed she did not remember much about the six days she had been missing, merely saying that she had eaten berries to stay alive and found herself in that cave somehow. He also mentioned that the area was overgrown with many types of poisonous berries. So that she chose the right ones to eat has also been seen as curious, especially since she had no real outdoor experience. The girl also supposedly made some very strange remarks. She explained that when she had gone missing, she had simply been unable to find her campsite or her father and brothers, despite being right near them. She would also claim that on several occasions she had shouted out to the people searching for her, but they apparently had not been able to hear her. She also says that she had seen the tracker dogs, but had been too afraid of them to approach. According to Politis, she also made the strange mention of how she had slept in warm grass on the first night she went missing, without elaborating on what this cryptic statement actually meant. Now, all of these weird clues have fired up quite a lot of speculation as to what happened to Catherine, much of it quite sensationally and leaning fully into the oddness of all these statements. One is that she was possibly lured away from her family by strange unexplained forces and possibly even carried to where she was found and taken care of by some type of entity. Full chills going up me as I'm saying this. Usually this sounds crazy to say, but when I feel these full chills, I kind of attribute it to being it's because it's so real. Now that's just my personal belief, but as I'm reading this story, I'm getting full-blown chills and goosebumps. 
So anyways, everything from fairies to Bigfoot to UFOs have been suggested in paranormal forums, and much has been made of the fact that this area was once feared as a place of spirits by the local tribes. Yet there has been a lot of criticism as to how the case has been presented, and that more of the outlandish elements have been emphasized to make it more mysterious than it really is. However, all of these seemingly strange clues in the fact that a little girl in a swimsuit was found alive after six full days in the wilderness have managed to keep this case making the rounds, generating plenty of discussion and debate. So as we continue talking in the coming weeks about some of these missing 411 cases, I do want to highlight some of the similarities that they share, which are very odd and really are just too much of a coincidence to be coincidence at all, as we always say on the Between the Lies podcast. First and foremost, a lot of these people, especially children who go missing around or in these national state parks, are gone without a trace. It's literally like the Dennis Martin case where his father had seen him about 30 feet away and poof, he's just completely gone. You even remember that his father would sprint for two miles in the direction he last saw his son and couldn't find him even though he was in a red shirt that stuck out in that general atmosphere. We have the same thing with this last case where the family is even reporting literally looking away for a second and then not being able to find their daughter for a full six days. In terms of missing 411 cases in general, children and adults alike, we also see some of these strange timelines in terms of distances traveled and the way that people end up where they're actually found if they're ever actually found at all. We also have a lot of times in these 411 cases where cadaver dogs, search dogs, tracker dogs, uh, the actual rescuers who are volunteering are combing over these areas multiple times and don't find somebody. And then on the third time that they're in that area, maybe a last ditch effort, they actually find the girl. I mean, what are the chances that the cave that she had come out of had actually been searched by tracker dogs two times? Dogs don't really miss anything. I mean... There are some circumstances where one dog could miss something, but for multiple dogs to miss this scent and completely miss it, I mean, to me, it's just too much of a coincidence to be a coincidence. In the coming weeks, as we continue to talk about these missing 411 cases, you will conclude, as I have concluded, that although there are many similarities in these cases, we cannot conclude anything besides the fact that these paranormal uh, type layers to these situations could possibly be present. And it is also extremely alarming that our national parks, park rangers, etc. are basically told not to talk about some of this information and have even been quoted on the record as saying that We don't keep numbers of the people that go missing in these parks. You know just based off of that phony bullshit alone that there is something going on in these parks that is being protected at the highest possible level. Lastly, I want to leave you guys with a theory that I found on TikTok. It was actually a girl who had reached out via letter, I guess like a handwritten or typed letter to David Politis and actually shared her theory. Now, I don't necessarily believe or disbelieve this theory. I just found it and considered it extremely interesting and figured that you guys would want to hear it. And you can watch the TikToks as well to hear the actual letter. But her name on TikTok is Beach Bum Ashlyn, all underscores in between the words. Beach underscore bum underscore Ashlyn. And in her letter to David Politis, she would state, basically her belief or theory 
is that is it possible that there are certain portals that are hidden throughout these national parks? Now, playing devil's advocate, if that were the case, it would make sense as to why these national parks are sponsored by the states, sponsored by the government. Is it possible that they are aware of some of these portals and are trying to hide them from us? It would also basically explain the fact that they are trying to cover up the amount of disappearances happening in this place. It would also explain some of the weird timelines we talked about, like how somebody could be here one moment and gone the next. Is it possible that it's a large-scale operation of disappearances that are happening and the government and the powers that be actually know why it's happening but fear that the public cannot handle the truth of it? Like I said, her name is Beach underscore Bum underscore Ashlyn. I really suggest that you go and listen to the letter. You'll see David Politis actually reading it, which is awesome. I hope to get in contact with him as well. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, some of these people just go missing without a trace. We even heard in that last case, the little girl, when she was found, had mentioned that she could see some of the people who were searching for her and call out to them, but they couldn't hear her. And she could even see some of the dogs, but they just weren't picking up on her scent. Is it somehow possible that some, if not all, of these missing people, children, adults, etc., just vanish into another plane of existence? Is it possible that that is the large-scale cover-up that we are witnessing and we are getting to when we're looking into some of this information? As always on the Between the Lies podcast, I encourage you guys, after listening today, tonight, tomorrow, whenever, to go and look into some of this information as well and make your own theories and make your own conclusions based on the information I've given, but the information that you'll find on your own as well. What we can reasonably conclude is that for some, if not all, of these missing 411 cases, there are certainly some wacky things going on that almost hint towards some type of paranormal or alien connection, possibly. Is it possible that it's portals? Is it possible that there is some type of existence that we don't understand that is happening in these national state parks? It certainly is not being represented transparently by our own government, And as always, that should make you wonder in itself. As always, I am your fearless host of the Between the Lies podcast. I appreciate everybody who reaches out to me, whether that be with positive or negative feedback. I appreciate all my listeners and all the people I have who reach out to me on a daily basis in terms of my TikToks or the podcast itself. Again, I am happy to announce that I will be doing the podcast weekly now, and I'll be following up in one week with some more cases of the missing 411 and I will also be reaching out to David Politis in the next week or so depending on my work schedule and seeing if I can maybe arrange an interview which is extremely exciting for me as I have chills as I'm talking about this but again we can reasonably conclude that something wacky is going on so do your own research hear some other podcasts about this listen to David Politis himself talk about this. All you have to YouTube is Missing 411 David Politis. You'll see a two-hour interview of him basically telling everything that he knows about these cases and some of the similarities in them. It is extremely jarring, but as always, I am your host of the Between the Lies podcast. Thank you guys for listening. Until next time, signing off.
Between the Lies podcast. Read Between the Lies. I had to go out and shit on the doubters. Look, mama, I've been on a roll. Reading the 48 laws of the power, then I redirected my soul. Harness and energy, rolling with karma, and I've been aligning the goals. You know it's real when the people that's peeping just steady rewinding your flows. Gotta play it back, they gotta play it back. I've been through hell in the past, but I made it back. I needed help in the past, couldn't face it. It came back to life. I know God had a hand in that. Mom got an angel wings that started everything. That turned me dark and never more menacing. Cold as I'd ever been, rather unsettling. He gon' feel that to the day to the death of him, Lord.